How are you today? We are in the book of Exodus. We are starting this brand new series. And many of you have maybe know a lot of the story of Exodus. Some of you may not. And my hope is that through this series, we all learn and find something new. So the question is, people look at me, they go, why do you choose the things that you choose? Like, why Exodus? I mean, we're a New Testament church. We're Jesus followers. Surely there's something in Matthew or in Paul's writings that we could be reading. Uh, What is it about Exodus that we, as a church, whether you're gathered here with me, listening online, or whether you're in a podcast later, why should we be digging our roots of faith into this book? First of all, The Bible is a book that reveals the nature of God. And Exodus unveils some striking and startling revelations about who God is and about his nature. In fact, it's in Exodus that we're going to hear God's name. Did you know God's name isn't God? Did you know that? God is, we're going to hear his name as he reveals those things to us. The book of Exodus is also very important in the biblical account. Exodus is the most referred to narrative in, in all the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Exodus means to exit or to leave. It's the story of God drawing and rescuing his people out of bondage, out of sin, out of slavery. Now, we just got done with Genesis last year. And the truth is, we've all had a Genesis. You were born, and many of you have had a spiritual Genesis. You've been born again as you followed Jesus. But, but not all of us have had an Exodus. Not all of us have been drawn out and rescued from some places in our life that we experience some bondage the things that hold us back, the things that hold us down. The truth is this, we are a people in need of an exodus. And there are places in your life, mine as well, where we're probably living in some bondage to sin or to our past or or we have misconceptions about God and God wants to call you forth and release you from those things. You, me, we each have a need for exodus in our lives. And finally, we're going to find Jesus and God's ultimate plan of redemption hidden in for us in this book of Exodus. We're, we're going to find Jesus between the lines. We're going to see him in the flames. We're going to hear his salvation whispered in the waters and declared from mountaintops in this ancient book. So as we start this new journey, uh, um, listen, as we find the new, new uh, nature and name of God as we walk through this together, my hope is this that each week we're finding something new, that we're leaving transformed. We have an encounter with God, and by the end of our Exodus study, that we can look back and see where God has called us out of some places, released us from some bondage, and called us into a new place, a new land. Let me pray for us to start off. Father, we want to dedicate um, this coming series to you. Jesus, everything we do here at the Orchard is from you, and it is for you. It is you above all things. Holy Spirit, I ask today that you would translate anything I say to the hearts of the people listening or following along, and we give you all the glory ahead of time. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. If you were with us here last year or you know the book of Genesis, you'll remember that Genesis is the book where God formed his covenant with his people. He revealed himself to Abraham, and he, he settled and signed this covenant. He said, you will be my people. I'll be your God. I will bless you. I will make you fruitful. I will give you a land for your descendants, and I will bless the whole world and all people through you. That last part was a messianic prophecy where, where God is telling Abraham, through your line and lineage, the Messiah will someday come. Abraham had a son, Isaac. We studied him. Isaac had a son, Jacob, who God renamed Israel, and we studied him. And then Israel had a son, Joseph, and we focused many weeks on the life of Joseph. You remember, he was a Hebrew who was sold into slavery into Egypt. That's how we get there. 
And through God's sovereignty, he raised Joseph up to be the most, second most powerful position in all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Now Joseph, he navigated Egypt through a terrible famine. He saved the people as God moved in him and through him. Joseph ends the book of Genesis by, by being, having so much favor from Pharaoh after saving the entire nation that he, in, he invites his whole family tribe of Israel to come live in, in the best places of Egypt. Now, that's how we end Genesis, with Joseph and his family gathering. But that's not how we start Exodus. And in fact, if you were to turn to Exodus 1-1 in your Bible, it likely starts off in a certain way. But in the original text, this is how it starts. It starts with an and. Exodus says, and these are the names. What does that tell us? The Exodus is a continuation of the narrative of what God has been doing in Genesis. There's an and there. So let's pick it up with this short genealogy that um, will get us caught up. It says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants there in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. 70 descendants, 70 Israelites living in Egypt and having the, fa the favor of Pharaoh because of all that Joseph had done. 70 descendants of Abraham. The Abraham who God promised, I will bless your family. I, I will make you multiply your numbers and, and give you a land eventually. So while it starts with 70 people in Egypt... Let's see what happens. Verse 6, it says, In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly, they became extremely powerful, and they filled the land. So from 70 to a great powerful multitude who's filling this land. We have God's people who are fulfilling the first command in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, compounded by God's blessing upon them who is multiplying them. They become so numerous this, this, in this foreign land that they're known as extremely powerful here in the land of Egypt, filling it. Verse 8, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. The Pharaoh is a God king. He rules Egypt, and he is believed to be a living God, a deity. This new Pharaoh comes to power, and he understands the dynamics of Egypt in its present place, but he doesn't know or care to know the history of how they got there. I mean, we have to understand it's been three to 400 years since Joseph saved the nation. A lot has happened. So much time has, has passed in these current times. They're so different. They're so far removed that Joseph is forgotten. All that's left of Joseph's legacy is the throngs of people, Israelites, who are in the land. Pharaoh, in verse 9, said to his people, Look, the people of Israel, they, out, they now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. Pharaoh speaks of these foreigners here. There's a great number and says, we must do something. Now, there's a reason, a really, there's a reason that Pharaoh looks at foreigners this way. You see, there was a time in Egypt's history previous to this where foreign leaders, foreign nations, foreign peoples had come in and in their strength taken the throne of Egypt. And there were Pharaohs, people who declared themselves Pharaoh, who were not Egyptian. 
So they, they know of this. This is all chronicled in their dynastic records, a foreign dynasty. Uh, it was actually some presume it to be during the time of Joseph. Like the Pharaoh that favored Joseph could have been a foreign Pharaoh. The Egyptians, they, they later revolted and took their nation back, but that didn't erase the hundred plus years of being ruled by these outsiders. And it left them with this disdain for them, but also it saw them as what? A threat. They could rise up. They could defeat us. We read this, we feel this, we hear this in Pharaoh's own words. They're too powerful. They'll join our enemies. We must do something. And he does. Verse 11. And so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave masters, drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Pharaoh's plan to conquer this powerful people group his plan is to make them slaves, to rule over them. For the Israelites, I, I, I can't fathom the terror of this transition. There they were in their homes. They were broken into, families gathered up, fathers separated from their wives and children and sent to the, the hardest of work camps, mothers separated from their children and sent to serve in the households of the rulers while the, the children were used for child labor. You can imagine how this powerful people group who had influence and favor Suddenly, how their life must have transformed and the sorrow. I mean, for the Hebrews at this time, their wealth, their valuables, their entire culture disappeared in one night. Interestingly, there's mention of Israel in the ancient Egyptian artifacts. The, the Mernipah steel pictured here mentions Israel by name. You, I, I know you guys are reading that, and some of you, um, you know how to read and decipher these. But for those of you who don't, I've gone ahead. We can zoom in. Um, that is the word Israel right there. It talks about being, the people being laid to waste. Um, next, we have a mural of a foreign Semitic slave labor force. You can see them in the bottom right and over here in the fields. And they're making bricks with the, the straw. And the taskmaster in the, in the relief, it says, uh, he is saying, the rod in my hand, be not idle, as it mentions these captives that are shown making bricks with clay and straw. Life would have been brutal, brutal for the Israelites living in Egypt. We read that despite the hardships, though, despite these things, what happens? They thrive. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied. Despite the crushing and bitter slavery of being, and being ruled without mercy, it said, God's covenant blessing upon them saw them continue to grow in number. Now, now, Pharaoh cannot seem to get this issue resolved, so he grows increasingly more ruthless and immoral. Listen to this. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave the order to the Hebrew midwives who would deliver all their babies. Uh, it was uh, Shifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women to give birth, watch as they deliver. If it's a baby boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. And, th and this is during the birth process. That they, as the, the baby was born, it would be killed right there on the spot or spared. Pharaoh is moved to strike the Hebrew numbers at their source, having these midwives kill the male babies as they're being born. 
Verse 17, but because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, called for these midwives. Why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys continue to live? The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They're more vigorous and have their babies so quick that by the time we get there, they're already born. So God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. There's so much here to discuss. You know, we have this new study on Tuesday nights discussing every, uh, what we're going through. And so Tuesday nights at 6.30 over there, it, it's, it's, it's a Bible study where you get to, to uh, dive in and discuss some of these things that I just have to fly over. And that's one of them. Again, we see God's covenant blessing remains with his people despite their hardships. This is such a hard quandary to understand for me. And, as, and maybe you as, you, as you begin to think about this, like, if God, if you really wanted to bless us, like, keep us from the slavery, right? You're blessing us in the hardship. Let's move the blessing back a little bit and just keep us from the hardship. I, I mean, if, people's, if God's people walk in blessing, why, do, why does God allow horrible things to happen to his people? Why do, like, why do diagnoses come back positive? Why do, why are there car accidents? Why do tragedies happen to children? And why are abusive adults allowed to continue? Why does war impact the most vulnerable of the society and cause suffering? Why? Like, like they're in God's blessing. He's blessing them, but he's not stopping. And we, we because of all that Jesus has done, we walk in Jesus' blessing, yet, yet why do these things happen? I remember one morning uh, years ago, I, it was early in the morning, I got a call. I picked up, it was one of my friends, and, and their son had passed that morning. And she was, mother, of course, was just heartbroken. And she said, we are all here. The entire family, 20 plus, we're all here in the waiting room. We're just waiting for you. I got dressed and drove to the hospital and I went in those doors and I, I stood right outside the room. The whole family's on the other side and I put my hand on that doorknob, doorknob I'll never forget. There is not enough seminary in the world for these situations. I was gonna walk in there and they want to know these questions like, why did this happen? How could this happen? Where was God? And as I, I said a prayer and entered the room, I only walked in with God's peace and comfort because I didn't know what to tell them. So we don't always know why these things happen. Why are God's people going through such loss and pain? And you know what that's like in your life or in your loved one's life. Why are God's beloved people here in Exodus allowed to be rounded up like cattle and abused and, and separated from families and tortured, but all the while through it, they're blessed in the midst of tragedy? So many of us, we would tell God, listen, instead of blessing me in the suffering, bless me by keeping me from the suffering. Have you considered this? Yeah. More likely, have you ever asked God? Like, where were you? Where were you? Where were you when this was happening? Why did you let this happen? How could you let this happen? You know, I spoke last fall about some situations in my life where my, my world fell to pieces. My life just completely fell apart. Everything I loved, I lost. And I remember asking God these questions through tears of sadness, but also in anger. Like, where were you? How could you let this happen to me? These are questions that our hearts 
cry out for. I remember when I moved back to Colorado and I was driving on Highway 82 and this song came on and it just hit me. It wasn't Taylor Swift or anything. It was like an actual song. I'm, I'm driving down 82 and I'm just sobbing, like you're passing people, like, I'm okay. Just, un, I'm undone. I show up at my job at the bank and I'm like, I'm ready, I'm here. Put me to work. The song was by The Fray and it's talking of to God and it said, um, I was lost. You found me. I was lying on the floor. I was surrounded. Why did you have to wait? Where were you? Where were you? You found me, but you were just a little late. You ever felt that? Like, I were, you could have been here earlier. These questions, these songs, these things in our life, they, they strike us. God, you were late. Where were you? It begs the question, why does God strengthen us in the suffering instead of keeping us from the suffering? It's an age-old question, and one I'm sure that the Hebrews were asking here, God, you're blessing us, but you're blessing us in slavery, in suffering. God, why? And there's no simple answer. I know you're all ready to write this down. There's no simple answer. I have, I have one that I've landed on, and based on, on, on Genesis and other studies, and that's where it finds its roots, and here's what I believe, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world where tragic things happen and selfish and sinful people make selfish decisions and at times even evil ones. We're in a fallen world where life and our bodies and everything we know is impacted by that. We were, listen, we were created for heaven. We were, but, but we're not there yet, are we? Someday, those in Jesus will experience a different reality, one without any pain or any sorrow. And, and listen to what it says in Revelation about those days to come, because this is what we were made for. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And listen to this. I heard a loud shout from the throne. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And listen to this past thing. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Everything that affects us and our loved ones here on earth, God will make no sorrow, no pain. You see, there'll be a day where that will be our face-to-face -face reality, not this fallen world. Now, because our spirits were created for eternity, like he says he placed eternity within us, because of that, we long for it. We long for it, and we get the injustice of when things happen that shouldn't happen. How could that be? Because we have eternity written in our hearts. We're meant for heaven. Yet here we are, where bad things happen to, to regular people. Where evil exists, where illness strikes, where, where, where imperfect people choose destructive habits or even make selfish decisions that deeply hurt others, even others they love. This is reality. And God allows a lot of life to come our way. And I'm always curious of, of what God actually does shield us from. I'm sure someday in heaven, when all things are be, will be uh, made clear, we're all going to be astonished at what God actually shielded our life from while we're here on earth. But all we know on this side of heaven are what storms do hit our life. 
what suffering we are in. And here's the promise of God. I will not keep you from life's hardships, but my daughter, my son, I'll be with you in them. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Here on this imperfect fallen earth you will have many trials and sorrows. And God doesn't promise to keep it from us and Jesus just actually tells us, hey, it's gonna happen. It's part of being a part of a fallen earth. That's what he tells us. So the first thing we do is we acknowledge that hardship is preloaded into this life. And we get this. You, I look around, I see your faces, I know so many of your stories. Uh, we, I know the hardships that we are going through, so many of us. And then there's private ones. We get that life is preloaded this way. So what do we do? That's what I, I, I recognize. I recognize that I will experience heaven someday. And all things will be made new. But for now I live in a fallen world. And therefore I shift from just pining for paradise someday and I begin standing on the present promises from God for this fallen world. The promise of perfection in paradise is someday, but there are promises from God for today. Jesus in John 14, 27, I am leaving you. I'm leaving you on this imperfect earth where things are fallen, where, where I said you would have trouble. I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the imperfect fallen world cannot give you. So don't be troubled or afraid. Psalm 46.1, God is my refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. And some of you may need to write these down and stand on these tonight and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Psalm 9, 9 and 10. The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge, a refuge you can run to in times of trouble. Those who know your name and trust in you, for you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. And then we have Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He's discussing his trials, and Peter has gone through so many trials. We, we, we read about it in the Gospels. We read about what these trials do. We see him transform, and he tells us why and what's happening. Peter says, so be truly glad. There's, a wonder, there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Your, your faith is being purified. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world and you go where all things are made now. The reality is, God is with you in your hardship. He's with you in your sorrow. And you might have showed up or logged on or listened to this during this week, and the one thing you needed to know once again was that God loves you, he sees you, and he's with you to give you peace and strength. And we're gonna get to even more of what he's going to do. Because God wants to move you through the suffering season into a new place. This is what we find in Exodus, a God who hears our cries, who's with us in our suffering, who, who rescues us, who wants to move us through the season of suffering to a promised land, to a new season. 
That's what God wants to do. And while we don't know all the reasons that some of these things hit our lives, sometimes just out of the blue, what do we know? We know that life can be hard. We know that there are areas, like, like, like they're, in, they're in slavery. We know there are areas in our lives, deep in our hearts, where we have chains. There are places where we have bondage, vices, addictions, insecurities, anxieties, depression. There are places where we have those chains. We know that there are places, deep places, that we need God's help. Places that we need the God of Exodus to smash what has been enslaving us, to bring us to freedom, to bring us to wholeness, to bring us back to hope and deliver us to a new place. We need the God of Exodus. And in this series, I am praying that he is going to reveal himself to us in a new way because we need Exodus. He's gonna draw you out, pick you up, set your feet, forge your your faith, and he's going to refine your purpose. Orchard, we cannot imagine the bitter tears in the life of the Hebrews as they went from favored positions to slave labor. We cannot imagine the, the, the pain of separation of families, babies, homes, lives, the terror that, of hearing favor, Pharaoh uh, telling the midwives to kill your sons. We can't imagine this level of sorrow. And before we get a glimmer of hope in chapter one, it gets worse because Pharaoh is not happy that the midwives aren't, aren't killing these helpless babies at birth. So then what does he do? He conscripts, he deputizes every Egyptian citizen to get in on it, to help eradicate any newborn males. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but let the girls live. Now this is the command of a God king to his people. The God king deity who stands with, between you and the gods, who, who brings favor to the nation, is telling you that any Hebrew baby boy, you are to go cast them into the Nile. And this wasn't just an order of terror. If in their context, this was a religious practice. This would have been a spiritual order from him. You see, in Egypt, there are many gods, and they have to all be appeased. And there's one person between the gods and the people. It's Pharaoh, the God king himself. And when he ordered the male babies cast into the Nile, the people of this time would not have seen this just as a simple murder. They would have seen this as an order from the God king, the high priest commanding them to take spiritual religious measures to ensure their blessing and their protection. How do we know this? You see, they believed that their everyday life was impacted by how they pleased or displeased the gods. If I don't sacrifice correctly, my son could be born stillborn. My, my child might suffer. If I, if I don't fulfill the God's desires, the crops may fail. If I don't fulfill the God's desires, insert whatever it would be. Their everyday practical lives, were, they thought, were tied to their, their ongoing pleasing of these gods. And they were willing to sacrifice. So, so why did the people throw these slave babies in denial without remorse? Egypt, unlike other nations around it, did not need rain to survive. Egypt had the mighty Nile River. And every single year, the Nile would flood. 
And when it flooded, it would bring black soil and silt and rich soil that would support the entire agriculture of their entire nation. It fed everyone. It fed everything. The flooding of the Nile has been written about in multiple ancient sources. It's the crown jewel of what kept Egypt plentiful in times when other nations were failing. The flooding of the Nile, which in many ways sustained the entire country in year, every year, Listen, if it did not flood, it would be catastrophic. And who was it that blessed them with this flooding? Well, they had a God for that. Ironically, his name was Happy, (laughs) the God of the flood. The annual flood was called the arrival of Happy. And they welcomed it with festivals and celebrations because when it would flood, we would all celebrate because we get to have crops for another year. We're safe, we're saved. It's hard to put in modern context just how much respect and adoration they would have had for this God, happy, worshipped even above the sun God. There's writings about that because while the sun always was there, sometimes happy didn't show up. And then no one's happy. (laughs) I still got it. In fact, (laughs) they have located and translated ancient papyruses that mention happy. There's actually a whole hymn to him. I read the entire thing. It's, it's, it's from Papyrus Chester Beatty 5. If you want to go read the whole hymn of happy, here's just a little bit. It says, Hail to you, happy, sprung from the earth to nourish Egypt. When he rises, the land is in joy. Then every belly is glad. Filler of storerooms and larger of granaries, the one who gives plenty to even the orphan. Youths and children, they follow him. He's greeted as a king, firm in his reign. And you can see them, the children running alongside as the flood was coming, greeting him as he's arriving on time, filling the upper and lower Egypt. And it ends by speaking of sacrifices and offerings they would throw into the river for this God of the flood. Offerings and sacrifices to ensure that the Nile flooded enough to feed the land, but not enough to overflow and swamp the land. And so they had a system. They would literally, they would begin to throw sacrifices in to the offering, to the Nile. And as it began to rise, they're like, yes, keep going, happy, keep going. And then we got right to the level they needed. They would switch and go, okay, now throw the other sacrifices in. No more happy, no more happy. And this was constant celebration, but also this fear. If there's not enough happy or too much happy, everything's changed this, this, this was an annual event. And this made Happy, like all gods of lore, very fickle, very precocious. He had a dark side that could bring unpredictable destruction if he decided, because of the way you behaved, oh, I'm not showing up this year. That's what they believed. This culminated under the belief that Happy, like other gods, guess who he was under the influence? He worked under the influence of Pharaoh, the god king the living God. So when the God King Pharaoh tells you to throw slave babies into the Nile to appease an angry happy so that your family can eat next year, they did it without hesitation. And sadly, this is where we start Exodus. That's the end of chapter one. This is the journey we're going to be on. A chosen people, a chosen people of covenant, now reviled and kept under brutal and merciless oppression. Their culture is eradicated, their self-worth gone, their hope eliminated, and their cry for help erupting from dry throats and dead eyes. Where is the God of Abraham? Where's the God of Jacob and Isaac? Where is our Joseph? God, where are you? Who will you send to rescue us? This is Exodus. Exodus is going to be a remarkable journey for us as a church. 
God sees his people and he is going to act in a power on their behalf. And God in Exodus, he's looking, but he's not looking for something. He's looking for someone. He's looking for a people who will say yes, just as he does to this day. In Exodus, we will see a showdown between worldly spirituality, even though we see now in our culture, a showdown between worldly spirituality and a true, living, powerful God. In Exodus, we'll find direct references to Jesus and we'll see the outlines and the traces of a savior to come and the foreshadowing of the Messiah. Exodus is a journey that we all need to take. We all need it to go from, from slave to saint, to go from chains to freedom, from powerless in some areas in our life to, to empowered, from fear to bold faith. And from merely existing here on earth to a purpose larger than ourselves, a destiny he wants to call you out of and into, Exodus is a story that we find ourselves in today. And this was going to be worth our time. We all need Exodus. We all need to be called out and rescued in some places. And we want to learn more about our God who gives us his name and reveals his nature. I want us to end with a song that's going to be an, an anthem for through many of these weeks. It's probably a new song to many of you, but I don't want let that, that to keep you from singing. This, is, this song is our anthem. Um, it, here's the chorus. It says, you are the God who fights for me. You're the Lord of victory. And it's talking about all that God's going to do in the future weeks we're going to read about. It says, you've torn apart the sea. You have led me through the deep. And the reality is this, is that some of you today, you feel like you are in over your heads. You are in the deep. And you need the God of, of Exodus to come and rescue you. We're going to have some people in the back corner, some of our elders praying for you. I'm available up here at front with my wife. If, if you need prayer, and, and one thing we're going to do in the response time, I don't want you guys to, to, to miss out on these opportunities. If you feel like there is something in your heart that you would like more prayer from and for, come find us. Let somebody pray over you. If you're online or following with us, email us. We would love to pray with you. But let me pray as we, as we move into a time of worship. Would you all stand with me, please? God of Exodus, Father, we are a people in need. We are in need of you, the chain breaker, to be our victory. We're in need of you to make ways for us through depths of life that we're in. We need to be freed. So God, we ask in the name of Jesus, your son, that you would meet us, that you would call us out, bring us through a season of suffering and out of that to a promised land. And now, hear our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.